Hello and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. I'm Douglas Carswell and joining me today is Maya Tuzi. Maya is a YouTube sensation. He's started producing small little clips that articulate views that never get heard on the BBC, never given airtime on the mainstream media. And um, welcome. Thank, thank, thank you. Thanks for having me. How did you how did you get into this? How did you start making videos that have become so wildly popular? I think I guess it comes across quite random, but then looking back, there was something behind it. So I was I've been in politics and conservative party for about ten years now, mm-hmm. and uh, initially I used to kind of have a very simple, easy blog when blogs were still a thing. Right. And uh, then I stopped that because no one was reading it. It was only a few hundred people, and then I started like just playing around with videos for campaign days and stuff, uh-huh. and. Then I realized I could actually do a bit more. When did you start? So I did a few like campaign videos for the 2015 general election. Right. Then I stopped that. Mm-hmm. And something happened in my personal life, um, essentially, because my background is Persian. So I, I was actually born in Iran and my family came here as political refugees. I want to ask you a bit about yeah, that. We, in a bit. Yeah, we get into that. But basically what happened was I, my dad is in Iran. He's, right. um, he's kind of stuck there. He can't, he can't get out. And he got a letter that basically said, your son is banned from entering Iran because he's a Tory MI6 agent. Because obviously, if you're Tory, you're definitely MI6, goes hand in hand. Right. Uh, so I got quite frustrated at the time. So I decided to just like randomly turn on my um, iPhone, make a quick video, just rant. And get it out there. Yeah, just put it on Facebook. And it went well. Almost uh, therapeutic. You were saying what you just, thought. Yeah, just randomly, no script, nothing. And then it went quite well, good reception and... That got about like 10,000 views without anything, which was just on my personal Facebook. Gave me the inspiration to actually start doing things more often. I, I often find when I'm listening to one of your clips, and I'm going to show some of the listeners one or two little extracts, you, you, you end up saying things that, and I think there's, there's no politician would have the guts to say what, what you've just said. I, I think that might be one of the reasons why people, people tune in and, and, and listen to you. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is you don't have to... That was my worry when I started the whole YouTube stuff and videos, because there are a lot of people, especially in America, that do this. Uh, political commentators and there are a lot of big names and smaller names. Rubin, like, Shapiro. Yeah, Shapiro, all these guys, include even Jordan Peterson, obviously less political, but still. Um, but these are actually the good examples. There are others who do similar things, but in order to get the attention, they think they have to go completely crazy. Yeah. Say completely like outrageous things. Yeah. So I was worried that, you know, do I have to actually be completely outrageous? Then... I noticed not really. So I'm still saying that things that, you know, if like if you and I obviously talk about it, you'd be like, well, it's kind of normal. Mm-hmm. But for the mainstream people, they're like, well, you can't say this. On a whole range of issues, it's almost like there's this settled opinion amongst mm-hmm. the expert elite. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of code and they stick to it. Yep. And then along comes someone like you and you mm-hmm. start to articulate views that are yep. completely not allowed. Yep. And we suddenly discover actually there's, there's, there's quite an audience. I think I blame it on the platforms that we have in the mainstream media. So mm-hmm. it's not in individuals in politics, commentators or politicians. Mm-hmm. It's not always their fault uh, as individuals. It's the platforms that the mainstream media, including like BBC, even Sky News, these guys create for a debate or an interview. Mm-hmm. They create a narrative when it's supposed to date, but it's so black and white and simple and it's so predict- predictable. But it's interesting because people always wonder, like my fellow conservative friends, when we hang out, that... They find that I actually spend more time reading and watching left-wing things. I, I read The Guardian, and not because I enjoy it, um, not because I'm a masochist, but because I actually, it's actually good to get the other side. And I, I love debating, um, but not just for the sake of debating. Mm-hmm. We all do. But I actually 
I, sometimes I go on Tinder dates and I just start rant, ranting about politics because I want to get the other person's view. And a I want to be challenged. Date. Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah. Is that a thing? Yes. I want to be challenged. Um, yeah, it okay. never ends well. But no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit too old for, for, yeah. for the whole Tinder thing, but I've just learned that... Don't, don't talk about politics on a Tinder date. <laughs> Tinder dates for politics are a thing. Okay. <laughs> now, you were born in Iran, yep. but you grew up in London. Yep. I'm, I'm fascinated. Mm. To what extent has that shaped your views about the UK? Almost fully. I think it was interesting because it was only a couple of years ago when I was talking to my mother and um, we discovered... I've now officially spent more time here than in Iran. Okay. Because, uh, you know, when you're still a kid, you're still thinking, like, you know, you're in, from home and all that. Yeah, but yeah. basically what happened was the Persian culture is kind of very specific. They are, in the, in the Middle East, they're quite different to other cultures. Uh -huh. I mean, like every culture is different anyway. But they are always hungry for freedom, uh -huh. individual liberty. Uh -huh. And they always had an issue with the state and authority, uh, which is very similar to the British culture. A long-standing yeah. civic tradition. Absolutely. And obviously, uh, for those that don't know, obviously, the first Charter of Human Rights was actually written by Cyrus the Great, okay. the, the first um, king of the first empire that we had in the world, which is now placed in the United Nations. Um, this was, is way okay. before Magna Carta or any of that stuff. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but the whole point was, when I came here, uh, even though I was new, and I was like, oh, new country, I have to make new friends. There were a lot of similarities, and I kind of enjoyed that. Then he kind of embraced the whole British attitude. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was growing up in Lewisham, southeast London, mm -hmm. and, you know, in a council state. And I was going to like school and college, and I saw a lot of people just like complaining, saying, oh, my God, this country is the worst country. Kept moaning and moaning. And this is like still like new labor years when apparently it was good, <laughs> according to the left. <laughs> so I don't know what they were complaining about. <laughs> but it's interesting you say that. My first real experience of the UK was when I was 13, yeah. until I'd been over here before then, but I hadn't really any experience of it. And I remember finding it an incredibly strange country. It, 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 it had, for example, working telephones, which yeah. where I grew up, yeah. there simply weren't any. But I, like you, I appreciate things. Um, there's a, a, an old piece of poetry by Rudyard Kipling, like, what do they know of England who only England know? And I, I, I again and again, during that whole sort of debate over Brexit, mm -hmm. um, you, 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 I've constantly found myself wondering if some of those on the other side mm. don't actually fully appreciate the extraordinary things about this country. I mean, this country is very, very different to other countries. I'm not saying it's necessarily better, but there are things about this country that are you only appreciate them as being different if you yep. genuinely lived and understood a country outside the UK. Well, the Brexit debate is kind of opened up um, people's actual opinions, which is quite mm -hmm. interesting. Without stereotyping, but yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of um, Remain friends that I have and also other Remainers that I've debated with, uh, they come out and say, well, of course we're patriotic, we love our country, and actually we're pro-EU because we love Britain. But when you actually ask them specifically uh, in terms of what, what do you think, what do you say in terms of the culture, the mm -hmm. attitude, they are so quick to point out the negative stuff and all the bad things that happen, like every other culture. But then when you say, okay, give me the good ones, then. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's always like they'll go, um, um, they're like, and they go tolerance. And I thought, find me a country around the world that believes in unfairness. And they said the rule of law. Tolerance. Find, me a country, <laughs> find me a country that says, do you know what? We're intolerant. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure that you can ever really define I mean, what I would say is that in this country, there's a, a respect for the autonomy of the individual. Yep. that sometimes manifests itself 
in a dissent in terms of the way people think. Mm-hmm. I, I think at universities in this country, for example, not always, but generally speaking, there's an academic tradition of, of dissent, of not, of not um, sitting there and mm-hmm. meekly learning what it is mm-hmm. you're being taught, but of actually making your own opinions and, and challenging the, the orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. I worked in, in continental Europe for longer than I worked in the UK before I became an MP. And, you know, setting up a business here mm. is pretty straightforward. Whereas, yeah. you know, try doing it in Italy or France, or France try yeah. employing someone in France, and you suddenly find you're, you're, liable for, yeah. <laughs> you're liable for them for the next 20 years. Well, actually, I mean, that's a good point in terms of, uh, generally speaking, the progress and individual liberty. And one of the reasons, uh, one of the good examples of the British attitude in a magnifying way is America. America was created based on the British attitude. Not by the British overall, because it was mixed with everyone, but it's mainly English-speaking world, mm-hmm. uh, but the attitude. And actually that proves, for example, since the Second World War, this country went, if not backwards, but slight, slightly flat, because politically and economically, and the political choices that our governments made had been quite wrong. And whereas we could have gone completely nuclear, bad word. Uh, <laughs> I would but, rephrase but, that. But, but, yeah, but pro- progress in terms of like, look at yeah. Singapore now, look yeah. at Hong Kong, look at even yeah. America still. Yeah. We could um, have gone for a very different we, we completely economic different. model. Yeah, even Germany did a lot yeah. better than that. Uh, so, I, I think a lot of the debate about whether Britain should be so-called mm. at the heart of Europe was basically a euphemism for politicians saying we should adopt the mm. European model of yeah. high regulation, yeah. high taxation. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say that actually that's fundamentally inconsistent yeah. with something in our political culture. Doesn't work. Uh, the um, the Brits try to influence directly on a continental level. It wouldn't work because we don't actually even want it. So people like Thatcher at the time and that lot who tried to kind of defend the kind of the markets, the European markets, they thought actually they could learn from us. We could impose free trade on them and they could like spread it around. Whereas it doesn't work because we don't we don't have the attitude. The number of times I heard people saying in the run up to the referendum, European ambassadors and yeah. officials in London saying, you know, you've got to stay in the European Union <laughs> because you're the liberalizing influence yeah. upon us. And I, I just you know, like yeah we tried, but it didn't work. So <laughs> we wanted to if you want to go full French yeah. dirigiste, good luck to you. Yeah, and no, it's it's kind of silly because we um this is why the the best way the British mentalities kind of spread is actually when you give it to an, a, a culture or a nation and just leave it like america like other countries too mm-hmm. um the you, you, there is a massive difference between a lot of european countries and the brits but also scandinavians mm-hmm. it's like three different blocks mm-hmm. and they're not all similar and uh my point was since the war this country could have gone the other way what was your very first political memory in the uk my first political experience was the the run-up to the Iraq war and obviously afterwards. Right. So I was just like, as a kid, I was just watching the news. Okay. Uh, on the one hand, as someone who's from Iran, as a kid, I was like, yeah, go, go. <laughs> and then I was like, hindsight, I was like, well, <laughs> don't go. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of like revenge. <laughs> I mean, I think there are a lot of people in the UK who were not sort of anti-war protesters, yeah. but who generally thought, you know, if... British state officials, the people yep. who run the intelligence services, if the people in Downing Street, mm-hmm. the permanent officials in the cabinet office, if they all think we should do this, okay. And I think in retrospect, a lot of, a lot of people had their confidence in the judgment of mm. officials shaken by that. Um, now I, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't have done it. I'm not saying we should have done it. But to be told that we're doing it because there were weapons of mass destruction yeah. and then to find Nasty out issue. not only were there not weapons of mass destruction, <laughs> but the people who were telling us there were 
perhaps knew that they weren't all along. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, that, that's one issue. Also, the exit strategy was just, well, yeah. a lack of it. I think my so I'm libertarian leaning, classical mm -hmm. liberal, um, economically obviously liberal, social liberal, with um, intervention and these sort of things and foreign affairs. I'm pragmatic because usually um, libertarians are supposed to be isolationist and yes. neocons are supposed to be just. Go in anywhere you want. Um, I have to. I take it case by case. Yeah. So um, and actually, the two thousand three war ruined all future wars or potential humanitarian actions. Yeah. And so even if you actually need to go somewhere. Yeah. And sometimes you have to, even as a libertarian. I, I, I know. I mean, it's it's all very well listening to libertarians saying no to war, yeah. but what would you have done in nineteen forty? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and you have to stop your enemies somewhere. Yeah. Um, and sometimes yeah, I agree with the whole if if it's someone else's war, if it's someone else's conflict. But sometimes you have enemies that are your enemies, but they're actually somewhere else, like like ISIS and all yeah, these things. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, so yeah, that war with them. I want to talk a little bit about some of the topics that you've discussed on your video. You beautifully deconstructed and ridiculed hmm. um, the Remain views mm -hmm. on a number of issues. One one theme that's quite constant in your video output is the, the extraordinary bias towards Remain amongst some of the intellectual and cultural elites, particularly in the education sector. Mm -hmm. Talk us through that. In what way is the education sector biased? Is it, is it leading young minds astray? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it giving them a distorted view about Britain's future? I think Hayek got this quite right, and this is way before this debate. But it is a general left and right thing. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in this context, Remain is left um, in a mm -hmm. different way. Intellectuals like control, they, they, and also they like to see things in a black and white thing. So if you say, we're doing this video because this outcome is going to come afterwards, whether good or bad, this is the mm -hmm. outcome. Mm -hmm. Intellectuals like that because they know exactly where they stand. Mm -hmm. um, this is the point of socialism and also remain because they know that there's a centralized bureaucratic body and they're going to impose this regulation, and this regulation will. They think the world can be ordered. Yeah, they can reorganize society, and uh, also there's that arrogance that they have because we we know everything. Give us the power, we'll do everything for you. They believe you. everything can be yeah. known that needs to exactly. be known to make. And, and so they're the elite. Then the rest of the supporters that they have are the elitists. They're mm. the ones that would, if you debate with them about Remain, they say, "Well, that expert said that." Yeah. And this is what the, what Michael Gove meant during the debate, uh, during vote leave, when he yeah. said, we've had enough of experts. He didn't actually say, oh, experts are wrong and don't listen to experts. He, he was talking about the bias that just someone says in a debate, instead of having their own arguments, say, well, I heard it from that random expert. Yeah. I mean, the Enlightenment mm. was the moment where people stopped saying there's an authority to knowledge. Before the Enlightenment, people said the priests and the princes yeah. know because they're princes and priests. Yeah. After the Enlightenment, yep. what's so interesting is that people who today pride themselves as being hyper-educated, hyper-rationalist, yep. behave like pre-Enlightenment yeah. people saying, ah, oh, we must follow this person's yep. advice because they're an expert. Very cliquey. And it's, um, but it is because they don't like, it was interesting, because you know, we were saying during the Vote League campaign, take back control. They should have liked that because they like control, <laughs> but their own version of control. They don't like free markets. They also don't like leave Brexit because both of these concepts mm -hmm. don't promise you a guaranteed outcome. Mm -hmm. um, free market gives you control so that you voluntarily transact with anyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, Brexit is also you giving control to a nation uh, to, and a government, a sovereign government, to decide what to do. They don't like that because it's very vague for them um, and because it could go either way. It could go complete right, it could go complete left. Mm -hmm. They like to be able to reorganize society. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's not a surprise that they're mostly liberal metropolitans.
social and economic affairs can be organized by design. Mm -hmm. And the EU is about creating mm -hmm. a design and a project to organize yep. the lives of 500 million Europeans. Attitudes towards EU integration yep. are basically a reflection of the extent to which people believe that human yep. affairs should be organized by blueprint. Throughout history, those people who want to organize a society mm -hmm. by blueprint yep. have to find an emergency of some kind yes. to say, you know, this is so pressing. Yep. It's so important. The sun will not come up tomorrow yep. unless we make the sacrifice. And you see this in a lot of pre-modern religions, mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. idea of there's a catastrophe mm -hmm. looming unless you sacrifice your freedom, your prosperity, yep. and pretty much everything. Yep. to the whims of a small elite. And absolutely, and it, it used to happen a lot in the past. Mm -hmm. Then it kind of stopped because of enlightenment and you know, the free world. It's coming back, and that's the biggest fear right, right now we have. Uh, with the, the, the climate change cabal is one example. Um, but they're going to continue that, and because they're doing it with Remain too. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, 90% of these economic experts say we're going to die if we leave the EU. Mm -hmm. It's the same with the climate change stuff. Um, but this could continue. This could continue with every area. The way we eat, the way yeah. we dress, yeah. like, and it's going to be quite dangerous but if we don't stop it. Often when I hear people saying there is a climate emergency, <laughs> there is an extinction catastrophe, yeah. you know, they talk about the climate emergency, it's, they're, they're bullying policymakers yep. into saying, yes, there's a climate emergency, because once you concede that, yep. you know, who can possibly oppose new regulations on plastics and taxation and yep. all the rest of it? But it's, it's, it's not really about trying to improve the environment. It's all about no. trying to organize. It's about a yes. small group it's of people good trying good to have power over another. Yeah, they don't care about that because the climate change issue, and back in the days when they used to call it global warming, wasn't political. You had Reagan and Thatcher talking about it uh, because they actually knew what the best solution is. It wasn't supposed to be political. It was supposed to be finding the best way to just live better as humans uh, rather than like, oh, we're going to die next week, so let's fix something. But in the 50s and the 60s and right up perhaps until the 80s, yep. people would use the argument of social equality. They would say, yep. yeah, we need more taxation and more regulation and a bigger government yep. in order to achieve equality. The fact that after you know, 40 or 50 years of William Beveridge's mm. type welfare mm. had reduced poverty dramatically yep. compared to what it was in the 1940s and 50s, no one said, you know what, the welfare states succeeded, yep. living standards even amongst the poorest are vastly higher than they were, even the poorest eat better, they've got central heating, yep. they've got mobile phones. You know what, let's wind up the welfare state. Because it's not fundamentally about yep. reducing equality. Equality, like climate change, is the pretext to in intervene in the lives of others. But the, you're right, and they get the support of the public. And this is where I'm going to say something controversial you can't say in the BBC again. Please do. Um, <laughs> it's because people by nature, even Brits and Americans, people by nature don't like freedom. They, don't, they think they like the idea of freedom. They still like the individual autonomy and individual liberty. But with full-on freedom comes responsibility. And if something goes wrong in their life, they lose their jobs, if they have to like sort something out, they have no one to blame. Um, that's why most people still tend to go towards vote for policies that are interventionist, more uh, pro-regulation, pro-tax. That, that's quite a pessimistic view of human nature. Yep. Um, I wonder if it's a little different. In the natural world, you're familiar with the idea of some species parasiting off, off others. Yes. There's a, 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 yep. a warbler will find that um, an adult cuckoo lays an egg in its nest. The warbler will be conned into thinking that the cuckoo chick is one of its, <laughs> and it will spend all its time feeding this wretched yep. um, parasitic bird at the expense of its own fledglings. Yep. Um, the whole time, the warbler believes that it's yep. serving its interests. Yep. 
I wonder if the parasites in the human world, yep. whether it's back in the time of the pharaoh, mm -hmm. back in the times of emperors and kings, yep. or in the time of technocrats insisting that we raise tax and yep. surrender control of our economy to tackle climate change, they create a sort of a parasitic creed yep. where virtue, being good, yep. is defined as submission to what they want. Yep. Sin, the ultimate sin, yep. is to live life on your own terms. Yep. Once people fall for it, it becomes very difficult for them to have the ethical sense to be able to recognize that the parasitic elites are behaving like the cuckoo parents. Yep. They're basically parasiting off the rest of us. Changing tax slightly, um, I've been genuinely stunned by the output of Channel 4, which I no longer bother watching, yeah. and the BBC. And quite often I will, I will watch and I will think, how on earth is mm -hmm. a programme like this produced mm -hmm. under UK public broadcasting rules? Because there's not even a pretense no. at being um, impartial. Um, what do you think explains this? It's been going on for a long time, but slowly, I think. Do you think they're aware of their biases? Or do you think, I think they, some they don't do. care? No, because I had a chat with, well, I can't really name her name, but <laughs> I talked to a very, very well-known uh, journalist, BBC, very well-known. And she actually, she, she's one of the good ones, um, mm. kind of like Andrew Neil, where they, they try to be impartial mm. for the sake of their job. Actually, these are the ones that are passionate about journalism mm -hmm. and in, in a geeky way, kind of like what I do with my videos, that they, in order to provide a professional service, actually, they like it. Whereas the others, it's... It, is this person you spoke to aware that many of their and she actually, yeah she said that yes there are individuals within the BBC and for Channel Four even Sky mm -hmm. that know that they're being biased mm -hmm. and they try to hide it. Yeah, in, in the run up to the referendum, I was appalled at the way in which leading broadcast journalists mm -hmm. colluded with Downing Street mm -hmm. to try to decide who should be the official voice of the Leave side, mm -hmm. and they did this not to be difficult, not to be mischievous. They did it because they knew that if they could get the worst kind of Eurosceptic voice yeah, yeah. articulating the case for leave, it would increase the size for remain. And I thought that would stop. And actually, it's got worse. No, well, well we need competition within the market. And actually, social media is, is a good way, but it's not the way, so mm -hmm. like YouTube. and Because mm -hmm. YouTube also has restrictions. And I have some sympathies towards them because it's the advertisers that are being picky, so YouTube has to be quite difficult. Yeah. But also sometimes they're biased too. Have you ever had a video demonetized? Yeah, a few, but then I kind of uh, appealed. You could appeal, so you could change a few words. I found that there's a list of words. You must tell me some of the words afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> well, so there are a list of words that you can't even use, even if you say I'm in favor. So for example, you can't... Don't use one now. <laughs> well, no, like, it's very simple words, like feminism, or uh, I don't know, like LGBT. You can't even use the words. If and, you use the word feminism, does yeah. it trigger... Yeah, it does. And actually there's one word, that shouldn't, because these are supposed to be in, like sensitive, like debate-wise. War. You can't use the word war. I'm going to have to edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. beep. But no, I, I do. So every time I use these words, I kind of mute it. Really? Um, yeah. Um, so literally, if I want to get this video <laughs> allowed past the YouTube algorithm, yeah. I need to go. It won't back. get blocked, but yeah, it, it, um, it won't get fully demonetized. I tell you what. Let's create a new word for feminism. Let's call it 
I don't know. We'll think of something. Well, it depends which, which, <laughs> depends which <laughs> feminism you're talking about. But if we, <laughs> create, our own, if we create our own vocabulary. Yeah. The F word. <laughs> <laughs> the F word. But, um, but uh, no, so the, the issue is the mainstream media right now, they have no competition and they're the same people mm. doing the same thing yeah. all over again. And uh, it, it's a big problem. And one example is when they have someone like Ash Sarker, who's a left-wing activist, she says she's a communist. Well, she's literally a communist. That's what she says. She's quite uh, engaging to watch. And yeah, and that's, I mean, that's one reason she gets invited. But I have no problem with her being invited. Yeah. My issue is when she's defending her views, uh, the broadcasters and the presenters say, oh, okay, so you believe in communism. Oh, cool. And that, and then it's, okay, let's move on. Yeah. Whereas if you have someone on the center-right, not even a full-on, like, anarcho-libertarian, like, capitalist, they, they get destroyed. They get massively scrutinized. I mean, they have to be scrutinized, yeah. but they get like completely. So you say you, you'd like free market. Do you, do you hate homeless people? Like, I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I quite agree with you. I, I actually welcome having yeah. voices like Ash's. Yeah, same. What, what I deeply resent is not the airtime given to that side. Mm -hmm. It's the misrepresentation and the framing of the debate at the center right. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was watching something the other day and it kept on presenting the notion that you should actually deliver the referendum mm, results mm. as being an extreme position. <laughs> and I just thought, hang on, if you frame the debate like that, there's nothing that the Eurosceptic voice can say in yep. that program that, 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 that will be yep. you know, fair or, or balanced. Well, actually, again, I can't say which broadcaster, but I got a call uh, to go on um, TV this week uh, to talk about the Boris Jeremy Hunt debate. And the researcher, accidentally kind of let it out. She said, oh, I say we're trying to find people to debate activists and members. We found the normal conservative member back in Hunt. We're trying to find the Boris fans. Like, a normal conservative member back in Hunt. And we're trying to find the Boris fan. Okay. <laughs> now we're on that subject. Do you have a preference? Boris? Yes, absolutely. I mean, between the two, absolutely Boris. It's, okay. And when I, I mean... Why? So this is where the politics comes in. So we were talking about values, ideologically, like uh, principles. Politics is in black and white, so you have to go with imperfections. Mm -hmm. So Boris is imperfect, but Boris is actually, the three reasons I back him over obviously Jeremy Hunt is the political side, he's, uni he's actually unifying the party, and even though they said he's never going to be able to do it, and he's, he's a winner, um, and elections matter. Mm -hmm. But actually, I agree with his views. And I actually... My issue is, over the last few years, this is, again, the narrative that media created. It's not just him himself that has mm -hmm. done this. Mm -hmm. They focus way too much on his personal stuff and character. Uh, no one actually knows what Boris stands for. Um, and it's actually, I've been going around trying to explain that <laughs> on his behalf. Because mm -hmm. obviously he's busy doing the election, so he's not going to go around, like, do a speech saying, I'm a free marketer, even though I, he is. I, I find it so incredibly frustrating. Mm -hmm. There's a debate over who should be the next prime minister. Mm -hmm. And this soap opera narrative yep. is thrown at us about their personal lives. It's silly. It's, I mean, frankly, who gives? Who, yeah. and, and the journalists who then wrote this up as, yeah. you know, um, Hunt attacks, leaves supporters as Little Englanders. I mean, they knew it was not true, yeah. but they wrote it that way because they're basically fraudsters. <laughs> well, this is the outrage culture. Also, I'm guessing that was actually Hunt writing that because this was the night when he was doing the Q&A thing on Twitter. And I'm pretty sure it was a staff member because he was sending a lot of funny tweets. <laughs> I don't think Jeremy's that funny. Um, but uh, that's actually a good point. But also, uh, Peston on ITV asked him something very personal. We don't need to go into the detail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it was very unnecessary. And actually, Jeremy was just... It's none of our business. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely none of our business. But then the Peston kept trying and trying. I was like, what's the point of this? 
I know. It's, it's appalling journalism. Yeah. Appalling journalism. Um, no deal. We're told that <laughs> no deal is impossible. Um, why, is, why is no deal possible? And why are those who are saying it's impossible completely deluded? So I, have, I don't really blame the ones that are outside Parliament, journalists and pundits who say this because they haven't read things. I was surprised to see uh, one of the Conservative MPs on um, Politics Live the other day saying this. And actually we had Andrew Lebson challenging him and say, no, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the default position is um, no deal right now. And An absence of a deal is no deal. By absolutely. And actually, they, because people have been watching the last few months with Theresa May uh, withdrawal agreement mm-hmm. and the Remain MPs blocking it, and blocking no deal. They think they can do that any time. They can only do it if there is a legislation put, put through uh, Parliament, mm-hmm. um, and then they can add an amendment and block no deal. But even then, I mean, even they, then could, the they, could, they could pass a bill that says, you know, two plus two equals five. Yeah, the, the executive um, could, Parliamentary sovereignty yeah. does not allow you to decide what Monsieur Macron thinks. All of that, that, that's the other thing. So there's one side, which is the executive from here deciding, and they could just ignore parliament, and it's not a crisis. It's not the same because the, the public have the executives back because 52% voted to leave. So yeah. it's not like you know, some sort of tyranny. But there's also the other side. So if the council, European council decide we're out in October, no one can stop us. We can't we can crawl back and say, please, please, don't, don't let us go. And even <laughs> if former... Prime ministers and lobbyists yeah. do what they've been doing, which mm. is open back channels up to yep. EU officials to mm-hmm. say, actually, let's do this pincer movement against <laughs> uh, leave. Uh, even then, I, I, I suspect that actually if the British state decides mm. it's not going to go for revocation of Article 50 and it's not going to yep. go for an extension, um, you know, that's, that's the position. Yeah. Um, and you know, if they want to have a court case about it six months after we've left, yeah. and a general election about it three months after we've well, left, good luck with that. Good luck, guys. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So that's actually the other reason I'm backing Boris because Boris is kind of bullish, and he's kind of he. I mean, I'm putting my faith in him, like being the usual Boris that he is. So I actually, if things go wrong, in the next few months, and actually mm-hmm. since between July and October, mm-hmm. um, and if there is going to be a vote to revoke or any of that stuff, the moment Boris ignores it. Mm-hmm. he's sending a strong message to Brussels and then they realise, oh, yeah. well, they're not revoking so what are we going to do now? Yeah. So no extension, yeah. kick them out. Um, how much do you think we owe the EU? I mean, I'm not going to go with full-on zero. Yeah. Um, we have to be civilised. Right? But the issue is, we become so sceptical towards this like, debate of the, the exact figure because the, the first moment they said, oh, 100 billion, like... Where is it coming from? Like, yeah. where is your, who is your I, ca- accountant? <laughs> presumably, if we've agreed on a project, I yeah. don't know, yeah. um, a road's being built in Spain and it's with EU funds and it's works underway now, or there's, a, I don't know, an EU project yeah. being run and we agreed to first fund the first five years, yeah. then you know, I can see the argument there for meeting our liabilities. Well, first, we have to kind of get people to actually um, calculate this properly mm-hmm. for the term that we've been in. Mm-hmm. And any yeah. outstanding between March and October, fine, pay them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I don't think the, this payment should be either for the long-term commitments or like projects, nor should it be for a, a payment to have a trade deal. Mm-hmm. It, it should just be for a membership. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. other than that, absolutely nothing. Maybe we should pay when they've got their accounts properly audited and signed off. Yeah, <laughs> which they haven't been for or, 20 years. Or, the Labour Party. Um, I think it's fair to say that Corbyn has sat on the fence. Uh, 
Mm. I suspect he sat on the fence, not simply because of his own views. He's, yeah. he's not in favor of um, a top-down technocracy. No. He, I think, recognizes that there are an awful lot, tens of millions of people who mm-hmm. are in the market for voting labor, yep. but who feel really strongly about, about the referendum and the mm-hmm. referendum result. Are you surprised at the extent to which Labour seems to be moving towards overturning the referendum result? Jeremy Corbyn was sold to us as someone who is very principled and, you know, in a very crazy way politically, but still principled. Mm-hmm. But actually, he's proven to be the other way around. So mm-hmm. he's, you have principled socialists. You have like Tony Benn, even like George Galloway, Ken Livingston, these guys mm-hmm. who things won't change with them, mm-hmm. either good or bad. But people like Jeremy Corbyn, just mm-hmm. because he's been hanging out with these people, doesn't mean he's the same. Jeremy yeah. Corbyn is a student activist in the clothing of a politician. Yeah. So he doesn't care much about, he, I mean, he cares because he's geeky, he cares about issues and politics, but he cares more about the game, the political game. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he loves campaigning more than discussing philosophical issues about yeah. Marxism or any of that stuff. And so right now he's leader, so he's actually more concerned about, he is more concerned about votes, it, even though people like Tony Blair criticize him, saying, come on, you have to care about winning and power and mm-hmm. votes. Mm-hmm. He actually does, but he just does it differently to yeah. people like Tony Blair. He's not principled in that way, no. I wanted to finish off by talking a little bit about, I mean, obviously, you're born in Iran. Mm-hmm. You've got um, Iranian family. Presumably, yeah. you've got lots of friends and family mm-hmm. in Iran. What's your view about the growing tensions between the U.S. and Iran? I mean, does that does that... That must bother you. Well, it gives me hope. Um, so we, yeah, we we in the Middle East, I mean, the Middle and Persian culture, we have a very kind of different mentality to Western Europeans. Obviously, I'm now more British. I, I've uh-huh. completely somehow gotten rid of all my Persian like habits. And like so some of my like my aunts and my family, they're like, "What happened uh-huh. to you?" I'm like, I don't know. Do you, London do you, happens to me. Do you, do, you, do you speak quite often to friends and family back? Do you? Are you able to go and visit? There are not many of them left because, uh, unfortunately, a lot of them, my fat friends, have either been killed or in, in prison. So, because um, they're also by the regime, yeah, because they're, they're also as radical as me. Uh, Since <laughs> is that a recent thing, or is this over the last few years? Like, yeah. yeah, really. Yeah, so yeah. the regime is arresting and detaining yep. and murdering people. Yeah. So it's since two thousand nine. It, Accelerated massively. Is this when there were the popular protests? Yes, there a was, lot of them there was a rigged election, and yeah. the green movement came up. Uh, and yeah, they, since then the government just decided to go full on. I remember seeing the video clips filmed on mobile phones of people yeah. on rooftop protests. Yeah. That was um, the, yeah, the the first uprising before the Arab uprising. That was organised by Facebook and mobile phones. And these ordinary middle class Iranians who don't want to live. Yep. This way anymore. And that was the issue, and that's why these uprisings failed, because it was mostly done by um, middle class and kind of urban. more liberal mind and urban. Yeah, it, revolutions make mainly work if you have everyone, including the working class, basically when people become desperate. And right now, it's got to that point where it's now the middle classes that used to be pro-regime because they're mostly religious, uh, they've actually given up now. Uh, everyone's now on the streets. And Iran's long had a highly educated, yep. urban, sophisticated population and women have been able to drive in Iran yeah um, you can't in Saudi Arabia yeah it, it, it was one of the most liberal yeah progressive well, 40 years in the 40 East. years ago they burned the books and uh, up until I was a kid in Iran history books in Iran still talked about the Persian Empire the Persian kings and queens mm-hmm. now from what I heard they've changed the whole curriculum so the history books only talks about Muhammad and the what so happened all in that Saudi. pre-islamic history is all been- gone Wiped out. Yeah, so any kid 
if you're like a seven, eight year old, like going to school, mm-hmm. you're not learning any of that stuff anymore. So, so it's, it's all gone. So it's almost sort of year zero and before yes. then. And presumably the way history is taught in the schools will tell you that the 79 revolution was a great moment. And oh, a brilliant moment, yeah. And, it's, and every year the anniversary we were forced to like decorate the school, like, like Halloween. Has it, has it become, <laughs> I mean, has it become less liberal in the past 10 years? It's more repressive, the regime. Uh, oh, yes and no. So the, it's quite interesting because firstly, what they've done, the regime, um, so obviously as, as an atheist, they've done the biggest favor towards uh, the, the cause of being non-religious, basically, or actually or converting people to Christianity because um, by enforcing Islam and, or, or any kind of theocracy, they're, uh, they're pushing people away from that. Mm-hmm. It's the same with the, the whole um, mentality of the regime. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the government is very, yeah, quite, it's pushing a lot. But at the same time, they know the limits. They're very clever. They let people be free to an extent, mm-hmm. up until a point where illegally free. So they obviously, like alcohol, everything's illegal. Uh, women can't dance. Uh, you can, women can't have chewing gum. They can't smoke. Are those rules enforced? Uh, that's the thing. So they know how to play it well. Um, so you create lots of rules, but you only enforce them arbitrarily. Yes, yeah, some of them. Yeah. So every now and then they arrest someone, but then yeah. that's it. So people know that there are rules, but. It's, it's actually mostly, this is the best socialist experiment that's been created, Iran. In 79, mm. Iran's economy was, in relative terms, pretty big. Yes. And it's, it's flatlined. I mean, even, even small little Gulf states yes. on the other side of the Arabian Gulf, Iran, now have, have seen huge increases in, mm. in output per capita. Yeah. But Iran has, is that, is that a reflection of sanctions or is it a reflection of or a government trying to run the economy through socialism. As someone who's from Iran, every time I hear um, lefties talk about, oh, Venezuela, Cuba, Iran are going down because of sanctions, it just makes me laugh. It's, it's not sanctions. It's, it's completely irrelevant. It's homegrown, homegrown Yeah, it's, it's, it was happening way before the fact, sanctions. Yeah. And also, the sanctions are quite major, yet if they were supposed to have the, the real impact that they were going to have, Iran, I mean, by the way, Iran is actually economically completely down. But it's still not as bad as Venezuela. But is Iran down economically because, the, I mean, do they have price controls? Do they have, they have regulations? For it's everything? full on socialist. <laughs> okay. uh, so they, they have everything that you could think so of. So it's, it's not just a, a, a theocratic regime. It's a socialist. Yes. Econ- it's, it's a completely theocratical socialist, almost Marxist, without being Marxist, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, things are nationalized. Football teams are nationalized. Um, so there are two big football clubs in Tehran, the capital. It's like Arsenal, Chelsea. And they've been nationalized since the revolution. The red team is more working class, mm-hmm. ordinary people. The blue team was the, um, the royal family team sort of thing, mm-hmm. like more middle class and like pro-Shah. And both got nationalized. And there's mm-hmm. been debate for decades now that the government keeps promising, yeah, hey, we're going to privatize it. By the way, privatization is it's like paradise, you know, the word. People mm-hmm. go around, they're protesting with the signs, privatize, privatize. In the West, that was the first thing I discovered here mm-hmm. when I came. Every, every, people don't like that word. But right, it, if you've got freedom, you don't appreciate freedom. Exactly. You've no freedom, you do. But in Iran, people are like hungry, they're crying yeah. for privatization. Yeah. And, um, and actually, they call it denationalization, like Margaret Thatcher did. Yeah. Maybe we should just stop using the word privatization. I, I, I guess also, if, if you live in a country where your regime mm. is not just socialist, but aggressively yes. anti-American, yes. I suspect actually a lot of middle-class Iranians are probably quite pro-American, not only in terms of wanting to go and live there, but actually they will see America as this great beacon of hope. So there have been a um, few like American and British uh, reporters going to Iran, interviewing people on the streets randomly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And 
they did the same like 20, 30 years ago where mm. people couldn't speak English. Now everyone's speaking English and they're like, how? Because the government doesn't like teach English because yeah. uh, the government controls education. It's only because like people are in Iran, because they were doing interviews literally like weeks ago and they, were, they say, oh, we got it from friends. Or like in a, so it's like almost the TV a show. Of, it's almost a, a badge of of, of honour to speak English. It shows that you're you're anti the regime and you're in tune with the wider world. People live their lives in a very Western way, in Iran. and um, so they they do certain things that's quite interesting. Um, so l- l- speaking English is one like the, you kind of brag, oh yeah, I can speak English. Uh-huh. The other thing is when they have like dinner parties. They they make homemade like sushi. So uh-huh. sushi is like a sushi is a thing. It's big. Like, and it's like oh yeah. I mean, even though it's not Western, okay. but it's Western. It's yeah. like you know pro freedom basically. Well, it's um, Japanese. Even the, yeah. I mean sushi yeah. for us is yeah. like you know oh we're gonna go to Pred like have yeah. like takeaway. Yeah. Uh, but for yeah. them it's like a proper like ha- like party yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. anything. Um, so things like that. And they they apparently a few years ago they were having house parties to like a watch party to mm-hmm. watch their TV show Friends, like. Years after it was finished, like in 2004, <laughs> but they were like they were having like house parties, and it's interesting that they um, they aspire to that lifestyle. Yeah, they they were ready for it. Yeah. What's going to happen? I mean, presumably, if enough people think this way, mm-hmm. you can have all the tanks, all the guns, all mm-hmm. the mind control. Eventually, mm-hmm. the regime will lose legitimacy. Surely. Yeah, but that's the thing. The Persian culture, kind of like the British culture, they don't like revolutions, mm-hmm. and also they kind of. They have one. I, can't, I, can't, I, can't, I, I can't use certain words, um, but yeah, then they're not as strong-minded as the, the French or the Arabs. So mm-hmm. the like the Arabs are the French to the Persians, uh-huh. uh, like uh-huh. the way we see the French. They're, they're always angry. They always want to do things. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, the, the Persians are always in favor of evolution. Yeah. Uh, that's why they they gained constitutional monarchy through mm-hmm. the kings and mm-hmm. everything else. And towards the end, actually, we had they were voting for MPs, mm-hmm. but then the Shah had to kind of roll back because yeah. of communists. But now it's just like. I mean, I, I dream one day of being able to go and visit her. I, I, applied, I applied twice and had my visa first time rejected flat. Second time I had a visa issued, but I subsequently <laughs> had it revoked. Yeah. I don't know why, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to go. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a huge It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's quite good. I, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, within the next two years, I've been telling everyone now recently, yeah. within the next two years, things will change. Yeah. Um, either there is going, going to be another uprising, yeah. uh, but if it happens, this is it. Or you might just get a reformist leader who realizes we can't carry on like this. No, it's not going to happen. No, they, they, they are so. They don't do reforms. They, it's basically like the EU. They, they, they have to believe in. You say that, but remember apartheid South Africa. Um, yeah. Eventually, you Gorbachev in Russia. If you run an economy that is, forget the internal dissent and the external yeah. prior status. Yeah. If you can see yourself as the regime. That it's a rubbish way of running a country. Yep. You're going to start something different, and once you start doing something different, yep. that's when you you really open up the prospect of of reform. I mean, Gorbachev in Russia, de Klerk in South Africa. Yep. It was their own self doubts that that proved so critical. Well, this is why there's a difference between. I know it's a bad word using it. Good dictatorial systems and bad dictatorial systems. Uh, you've got good dictators and bad dictators. By good, we don't mean good, but so you have it. There's a difference between a good dictator uh, can see the limits of their own. The good dictators propaganda. are there because they actually care about their country, but yeah. they think this is the best way to do it. Yes. So you had the Shah. I mean, they're who, mistaken, but they're acting in what they believe yeah. is their national interest. You have the yeah. Shah, even Assad, to a, to a point, he's there because he actually thinks he's the father of a country, and you know that's the way to do it. There's a difference between those guys, and even Gorbachev, than Gaddafi, or even Saddam. 
So you're talking about a dictator who knows that what they're doing is not in the interest of anyone but themselves. They're there for power. They're there yeah. for their own yeah. um, either selfish interests like Gaddafi, yeah. just, just power, personal power, family yeah. power, or an ideological power, so the, the Islamists in Iran. They generally, and I, I've seen them and I've met them, they passionately hate Iran and their country. They hate it. Um, they are more concerned about their theocracy. They actually would change a flag if they could. <laughs> and uh, they say that religious first, then Iranian. Um, so you can't, and everyone who's a reformist or who's like okay-minded mm-hmm. is out mm-hmm. of that system. So, so. That, that's interesting. They, they, they identify their mm. religious and theocratic worldview yeah. over and above the national interest. Absolutely. It, it, interesting. <laughs> In the Soviet system, mm-hmm. I would say that by when the West made a point of not treating every Russian as a communist, yeah and started to encourage those who had a, a legitimate desire to see Russia and mm. the Soviet system do well, but weren't communists. Yeah. That's when you started to open up this gap. Um, yeah. Well, that's the thing. So I think the best way to do it, I mean, we had the chance about 20, 30 years ago, the West to softly intervene mm-hmm. culturally and mentality like we mm-hmm. did with the Russians. Uh, but obviously, the Iranian government shut down everything. So there was no, there was no mm-hmm. um, way for us to do that, yeah. to create that kind of, divide, a good soft divide. But yeah, I mean, fundamentally, if you're sitting in Tehran and mm. you're one of these gangsters running mm-hmm. this mafiosi mm. theocracy, if you've got tens of thousands of your young people watching Western Friends episodes, old episodes of Friends, yep. aspiring to a Western jean-wearing, non-headscarf-wearing mm-hmm. culture, yep. I mean, you know, fundamentally, that... it. Whether or not American drones get you, the yep. desire of your own people for liberty will get you. But that's why they've been smart. They played it quite well. They ban things, but they let people do that stuff. So I've spoken to a few friends who are in that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they do their Western things. And I say, but do you not like freedom? I mean, do, do you hate this government? And they're like, oh, yeah, they're terrible. Oh, yeah, we want to be free. But like, eh, but, you know. We can still do this. We can still, like, you know, go to like a random mountain, have a barbecue, and yeah. dance around. Uh, they oh, find a way of we don't have living the under the state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and it, the brainwashing thing it, take, it takes a few decades, but it, it's now complete. The culture is changing, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. The mentality is changing. Mm-hmm. So uh, even those that are completely against any sort of religion and kind of they're completely atheists. There are some that are radical like me. And I, I was a kid, and even as a kid, I was always like a radical. And we were like because we were forced to like pray and go to like these praying rooms and that sort of stuff and I used to like sit in the back with my friends just heckle uh, but there are, we were the kind of odd ones because even the ones that are still anti-religion it's so in their mind that they, you could never get them to say for example as an atheist you say you're an atheist like yeah it's like can you say God doesn't exist they can't say it it's because it's so deep inside now they, they would be fearful of saying something offensive no it's, just, no it's just in their head even privately they can't say it they're like no we just can't accept that God doesn't exist I'm like, but you know it doesn't I'm like yeah I know but you just can't say it whereas here <laughs> if, you, if you want to articulate a distant opinion <laughs> people just shrug their shoulders I mean you know it, it, it's yeah. a matter entirely for the private individual as to whether or not you believe in God whether you don't believe in God and if you believe in God what relationship you have with God? It's, it's, well, you say that about here, but it's only certain things. If you say I'm a free market here, people look at you weird. <laughs> and actually, actually, rather worryingly, there is some suggestion, and I don't want to go over too many subjects, but there is some suggestion that, in effect, there are there's a law of blasphemy in this country again, simply because mm-hmm. certain people 
find the state coming after them yep. if they say things that are in effect. Yep. Um, some people would regard as blasphemy. I mean, I, I would say that you should have the freedom to blaspheme all you want. Well, that's it, it's funny because this is the country that, in one of the, because we're talking about like the British culture and what it is and how to actually mm. describe it. One of the like few things that you could easily say it came from here: modern democracy, free trade, the, the mentality of it, and also free speech. Mm. And this is the country that's now we don't have free speech because we have hate speech laws, yeah. and uh, it's it's made me worried because if it gets really bad. It will force me to like move to America, and I don't even like America. <laughs> I, mean, I like the American system. I like what yeah. they've done to their country, but I don't yeah. like the culture. But because yeah. um, they still have free speech there, yeah, yeah. whereas in Canada and in the, in the UK, uh, with hate speech laws, and it could get bad. I mean, once you create the concept of hate speech, who defines what hate speech is? If, like it is at the moment, yep. it's entirely self-defining. I I'm a victim of hate speech because I feel yep. that they said something that I find offensive because of my yep. heritage or ethnicity or gender or the rest of it. Yeah, it's not a it's not a sustainable no and it, approach. But this always goes with the left. So they they start with something. It's like yeah. with the sugar tax. They started with like visit drink tax. And we said on the kind of liberal right, libertarian right, said it could it could go too far. And they always make fun of us, like oh, you always say that, but it doesn't. And they start banning everything. They're now going after pizza sizes, yeah. pizza toppings, uh, the you cereal give people boxes. these power, create yeah. a precedent. Because you know who are you to decide? Yeah. Like you know that you know better than us. Yeah. So. Finally, are you sometimes frustrated that you're making these arguments mm-hmm. brilliantly on YouTube and the Conservative Party? Isn't always doing so. It, it's it's a rare Conservative MP who makes these arguments yeah. with the verve and the vigor that you do. Uh, yes, but I kind of I've come to accept the game and the system. Party machines they have to play differently. Uh, it's, it's, I I never managed to come to terms with the party machine. I mean, for a, for a while you were on your own whip. In Parliament, <laughs> I, I, when I got elected in two thousand and five, I, I won't say who he was, but there was a certain MP who was my whip, and I cheerfully explained to him that I regarded everything he said as as voluntary, and we got on quite well after that. But yeah. he, he he went through this period of about six weeks of trying to get me as a new MP to vote for yeah. stuff, and I just if I didn't agree with it, I wouldn't. End of. Um, but now, I mean, that you're right. I, mean, I don't agree with the the current system. And the, the way the, the party systems work, and actually even the whole um, parliamentary system in general. Um, I'm not completely like radical, like in a, um, Oliver Cromwell, um, but but in, in overall, there has to be a change. We have to kind of localize things more often, yeah. and uh, also in terms of democracy, increase it within parties. Yes. I would rather have, for example, with like local elections, I'd rather have like councillors stand. As you also have to have dissent. I mean, I'm all in favour of backbench MPs being able to. Go off on their own direction. Yep. But local voters should have the power to recall them. Absolutely. And you should trigger by-elections yep. if you either change party Absolutely. or I would say actually if if you put something in your own manifesto, yep. your own taxpayer-funded yep. election address, yep. and you break it, yep. I think that, that local people should be allowed to trigger a by-election. Absolutely. I campaigned with Zach Goldsmith on this issue. Yeah. Um, he was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The, the recall. Yeah, if you have a sensible threshold... Because you know the people who were opposing it, there was the ones that are kind of worried about their own seats, but also like you know. And, and, and there's a mechanism for that. I mean, the whole reason why the taxpayer mm. pays good money for mm. every candidate standing for mm. House of the House of Commons to have a taxpayer-funded election address mm. is to allow you to set out what it is you're going to do to the voters. And I, I, I think I'm not saying it should be a legal contract. Mm-hmm. It, it shouldn't be. Um, 
um, for the courts to adjudicate on yeah. this. But fundamentally, if you put a black and white pledge in your yeah. election dress and you break it, I think you should be able to trigger a by Well, that has to be an electoral contract yeah. a, 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 on like society level. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, absolutely. And if you say no to tuition fees and then you put in tuition fees, or well, yeah, um, that... I'm going to honour a referendum result and you renege <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, but there, I would also rather have parties that have more flexibility. They don't mm-hmm. have to con- completely lose control from the centralised yeah. yeah. uh, offices. Yeah. So that's the problem. The reason like Tory HQ, Labour HQ, all these guys are kind of very centralized is because they have to control it somehow because yeah. you know because members could go completely crazy like you have like people from left and right could say a lot of things and but, momentum in the labor party yeah it's yeah. just like how are you going to stop them yeah. but actually they're in charge so um but if you ha- if you give more power to the grassroots and also backbench mps yeah. to create a debate yeah as long as they don't so you have a set of fundamentals within a party I don't know, we are not in favour of communism as, like, right-leaning yeah. people. Or we want lower taxes yeah. or higher public spending. But I'm more than happy if people on the Conservative Party start debating the NHS or level of taxation. Yeah. Or you can't, yeah. because, yeah. you know, it's yeah. radical. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful to have you come in. We've gone from... I had a list of topics to discuss, and we've, <laughs> we we've gone... Well, yeah, we've, we've gone way off script. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thanks for having and me. And please do keep making these YouTube uh, films. Um, I watch them, and I, I hope um, I, I'll feature one or two at the end of this. Thanks Thank very you. much. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks. Great. and their country.